so next up we have a very special session with uh, uh, madhu kishwar ji uh, so i mean i don't know if she needs an introduction to this kind of an audience uh, <laughs> so i'll uh, straight away invite her and she'll be talking about the the women's rights movement in india from a dharmic perspective i mean uh, every milestone that you can see uh, in the women's rights movement since the 1980s uh, you'll find some imprint you'll find some writings because manushi was the first journal probably uh, the which which was the most referred one uh, on women's issues so now over to maruji namaste everybody um, i wish i could have been here in the morning but um, something some big emergency held me back because uh, to come and just make your presentation and then leave is uh, not only rude but also very um, impoverishing for the speaker so i'm very grateful actually you were running late and i could uh, have a taste of four papers nahi to main aati bolti aur phir thoda sa shaam ko sunte um but i hope i'll see all these presentations uh, on youtube soon now when we talk about the women's rights movements in india from a dharmic perspective uh, i really didn't know where to begin um so i thought instead of talking about it as though i'm studying it as an outsider i share with you my own life's experiences with it because in some very essential ways uh, the contemporary women's rights is it a movement mujhe to dikhti nahi hai sahi mein aur maine bahut din se ye by the way if i speak a little bit of hindi is it a problem it's okay 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 to maine kai baar is baat pe acha mere paas time kitna hai ye to bata dijiye um very early on in fact i began to question this movement movement vocabulary i believe one of the earliest workshops that i attended of women's groups just as we were starting manushi it happened in bombay and a lot of women around um issues that they hadn't yet identified came to talk about it and they were already talking about not just women's movement but socialist feminism versus bourgeois feminism versus radical feminism versus movement i said movement kahan hai sirf yahi hui main delhi se mumbai aa gayi wo movement tum bangalore se mumbai aa gayi wo movement to kitne log all right 25 50 30 jitne bhi log hain hum hum apne apne gharon se aake yahan baith gaye movement kahan hai hamare ilawa i mean what do we represent and this i'm talking about way back in 1979 just as we were preparing no 78 in fact i'm ancient you know so just as we were preparing uh, for manushi and this is one of the earliest movement so they started talking about it simply because new left review was talking about it the western publications were talking about it. so you had to create a movement even if it was all in your head and not just movement you also they started by creating uh splits within the movement this is bourgeois feminist this is socialist feminist this is blah blah when manushi came out i mean different groups put these different labels abhi to humne muh khola nahi aur aapne label chipka diye so 
the movement idea, and I have at different points in time questioned this movement movement, and some of it will come out. Why I say, uh, you know, what, what are the essential uh, components of a movement? And I wrote a long article, I'm just reminded of it, in Economic and Political Weekly, questioning precisely this. When does mobilization of women turn into a movement? Because one of the prerequisites to something to be called a movement it is that it has to be self-sustaining. It has to be an organic uh, out, outburst of um, aspirations and has to be self-sustaining. It must have a base of its own. And has the contemporary so-called women's movements, movements, whatever, do they have any social base? Now, as far as the dharmic component is concerned, as a student of history, who started actually as a student of history, since it's very common among leftists and feminists to always start with, they're the first ones. They started it. You know, there's a desire to be first, the first one to have done X, Y, Z. That's a Western obsession. Because they have to forever prove that they're smarter than people behind them, right? Including their own parents. We don't have that attitude. So before I even started with Manushi, one of the first things I did as a student of history was to start with at least the 19th century social reform movements down to the freedom movement, during which time the women's rights, it's very interesting that while the feminists in Europe were battling their patriarchy and were getting bashed from, from men, in India, it's a totally different trajectory in the sense that leading male reformers took up women's issues. And in all the regional social reform movements, was they be it Brahma Samaj, Arya Samaj, Prachna Samaj, in every uh, part of India, you had these social reform uh, movements. I've written about it. I don't want to dwell too much on it because I want to come to the contemporary part. And one of the books that I will be in the next couple of years is doing exactly this comparison of what was 19th, you know, be between 19th century reform movement and contemporary. What's the difference? What's the commonality? Now, um, those movements and the impetus, uh, A, the, note, the most noteworthy part of 19th century social reform movements, uh, including the freedom movement um, period, uh, when in both uh, times, women's question became the central question of both these uh, uh, reform efforts as well as political uh, mobilization. And in fact, uh, Gandhi uh, said it, that those who think that women's rights uh, issues have to be postponed till we get independence, don't even understand the meaning of independence. You don't even deserve to be free and independent till you handle your relationship within your family and, and your grasti is in good shape. Now, uh, so at that time, the vocabulary of the reformers as well as the aspirations of the women who came forward, invariably had a dharmic perspective. And they certainly had a lot of respect for the grass role, the Grey Lakshmi role of 
of women. But by the time you come in post-independence India, and uh, you know, in, uh, all these social movements, somehow in post-independence India, it's very ironical that Nehru, under Nehruvian Congress, women are sent back. Though they were very prominent leaders during the freedom movement, they were not just leaders of women, but when women like Kamla Devi Chattopadhyay or Sarojini Naidu were leaders of men. They were leaders of the nation. They weren't just leading the Zanana Dabba of the Congress party. Even though Congress had All India Women's Conference or Women's Wing, but there were many, many women leaders who were considered national leaders. Now, during the Nehruvian phase, especially after Indira Gandhi takes over, women are sent back. Partly also because Indira Gandhi couldn't stand any rival, at least not among women. Men she could frighten, but women she just put behind. So you saw a certain lull during that phase, and it's only in the post-emergency era when there is, you know, I, uh, those of you, many of you are too young to know what happened during the emergency, but in the post-emergency era, there was a real ferment from below with regard to civil liberties, dem democratic rights, many of the things that people had taken for granted. Um, in India, nobody thought that kids could be just sent to jail or press freedom could be cut. Many of these rights were taken for granted when they were taken away. So there was a, a, a noticeable ferment in society and this idea that we need to be vigilant about it. So civil liberties groups, democratic rights groups, et cetera, start uh, emerging post-emergency. And I would, in a way, claim that Manushi is a product of that ferment. Um, and one of the few organizations who have uh, taken the two, two issues together, human rights, democratic rights, and women's rights. So from the very beginning, we never saw or utilized Manushi as what I call as an anadabba, ladies' compartment, where you only talk of women's issues, rape, abortion, dowry, kids' rights. The rest of the issues, uh, taking off from your point about the private and the public, that women's issues are confined to all these concerns, and the rest is all men's affairs. But this is um, how a lot of women's groups that came up uh, had this notion, very narrow vision notion of uh, what women's concerns and feminist concerns need to be about. Now, when we started Manushi, which was we started work on it, preparing for it in 78, 1978, 77 emergency had ended. And contrary to the way um, the left and the feminists def define their role, which is we have to go and raise consciousness of people. We have to tell them what to do. From the very start, we, we stated it very clearly that our job is not to tell others what to do, how to raise their consciousness, how to become more assertive, how to become empowered. No, but our job is to understand what are the aspirations of our people in different regions of India, in different parts of India, because India, as you know, is a land of diversity. 
And we need to understand in concrete detail the lives and aspirations of women in different regions and not take it for granted that what I think is good for me is good for all the women, uh, simply because my life situation is not the same as that of, for example, a fisherwoman in Kerala or a peasant woman in Punjab or a woman in Manipur uh, in a matrilineal community or whatever. These differences have to be understood and as well as the commonalities. And we have to tune ourselves into the aspirations of our people, assist them in achieving what they think they need and what's stopping them from achieving it, rather than telling them what they need. But the typical women's movement, feminist movement attitude is, firstly, call yourself a feminist. It's power label. Sabi, you prove that you are not a um, lower consciousness person. You're not yet aware, you're not yet awakened, you're not yet, etc. But since I had seen enough of very strong women in my own family, my grandmothers and other women, you know, who are far stronger than these very fragile, flimsy feminists who are my friends, uh, I could never see any advantage in getting women to put that, stick that label and think that they're Thereafter, then, um, the world gets illuminated and the woman gets empowered. Now, when we started Manushi, by the way, we started with just 800 rupees from our own pocket. We had no office, we had no typewriter, we had no experience, we had nothing. How we did it, we must have been crazy, and I really must have been completely nutcase. How do you start a magazine, which instantly, though, from the very first issue became it went global. I have no idea why and how, because we never sent one free copy to anybody. But something about it, it just went on its own. And the way we had collected money was we wrote a proposal, satisfied on a very shoddy piece of paper, sent it all over saying, we want to build out this magazine. Please help us. Enroll subscribers. Would you like to? And on their own, people who didn't know us collected subscriptions. That's what brought in about 10, 12,000 rupees, which brought out the first two issues, English and Hindi of Manushi. And thereafter, as Manushi reached, traveled on its own, I had no idea how it did, on its own, and a lot of, by the way, as with 19th century social reform movement, where male reformers had led the women's rights movement, we found that a large number of our supporters happened to be men, without asking. And they kept enrolling subscriptions. That little money kept coming, and that's how we moved from issue to issue. Now, the reason I'm saying all this before I come to the analysis of the kind of movement or pretense of a movement they've had is to explain to you that that upsurge that Manushi created, that catalyst role that Manushi, wherever anybody, most of us uh, readers, who got a copy of Manushi in their hands, most of them would say, send me 50 more copies, I want to enroll more subscribers. Send me 100 more, send me 20 more. And a large number of groups that emerged all over India owe their origin to people starting little discussion groups around articles that were being published in Manushi. Many of them started also translating them in Marathi, in Tamil, in, in Telugu, in all the languages. 
um, and, and using that as a takeoff point for bringing together groups of women in their area together, not just women, very often it was, and a large number of them also happened to be at that time leftists, um, you know, people oriented because social causes, social justice, somehow left tunes in or hamare din ko ab right winger kehte hain to sote hi rehte hain um they're not they they don't connect fast now within no time i found that all these groups that had come up suddenly all these foreign foundations came and started dispersing money to them almost everybody fell for foreign funding i can't name even two or three who didn't, even though many of them were closely connected to Manushi and emotionally very deeply identified with it. We were the only ones, and I was fussed enough right at the start to say, we shall not take foreign funding, we shall not take government funding, and also, we don't want to make it compulsory. Now I said, Board ka paisa nahi lena, iska nahi lena, uska nahi lena, sarkar ka bhi nahi lena, lena kaan se hai? To, bada simple formula tha, that if Manushi has some worth, then it should be supported by the people for whom we are writing. It's not been easy, it just meant living from hand to mouth, and we could survive only because our own livelihood was not connected, I was, teaching in Delhi University, so were some of my other close colleagues at that time. But once foreign funding came, the entire environment and the entire energy, it, of course it led to swift institutionalization in the sense that the way we started without an office, without a typewriter, without it, very soon people had offices, they had cars, they had this, you know, whole staff, and they were jet setting in no time. Now, it's not as if Manushi was not sought to be seduced. In fact, uh, within about a month or so of the first issue of Manushi, I was invited by the country head of Ford Foundation for dinner at her house, um, a very lovely woman called Kamla Chaudhuri. And she said, Madhu, you've done a great job, and the Ford Foundation would like to fund it. So I said, but Kamla ji, that's very nice but we've already announced on the first page itself, contents page, that we will not be accepting any foreign funds or whatever. So she was a bit taken back and then said, yeah, that's a very good idea. Actually, I quite admire it. And then about 10 minutes later, after we'd had a, a couple of glasses of red wine, she came up with another proposal and said, um, how about this? We'll buy, we'll, we'll buy 10,000 copies in advance for five years. And um, we'll pay you for all that in advance. I said 10,000 copies for five years or whatever. And then we'll extend the contract. Now, I didn't even know how to count, you know, what it would involve, even though at that time the subscription was, you know, he was selling Manushi had one rupee a copy without having any idea how much it's actually costing us. We never did that cost cal calculation. I, I don't know cost calculation even till date. Now, it seemed a lot of money. And though I was, uh, I mean, a bit taken aback by the second, I said, 
Uh, no, but then that would amount to, uh, uh, no. My second question, oh, I said, okay, if you take these 10,000 copies, who are you going to send it to? So said, no, 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 we won't send it to anybody. You send it to whoever you want, which means the magazine would go free and we would just distribute it to whoever we thought should notice that. So I said, no, no, I've also taken a vow. We're not going to send even one free copy because once you get something free, you just put it in the garbage. Some may read it, but at least six out of ten will, might throw it in the garbage. And secondly, if you are telling me to send them, then you're in effect funding it. So I don't think that would be, you know, it's like, exactly what I told her. I don't know how to bring my hand to touch it to that. So I think we'll, we'll uh, say no to it and let's close it. But the point that I'm trying to make is this, that in all of this, this is not the only effort. The point that I'm trying to make is this. Within a month of our exist, I mean, uh, of our going public with the first issue of Manushi, if such a big financial offer comes, um, you can well imagine how others were roped in and networked. Now, the moment you accept foreign funding, it's not just that they make life comfortable for you. Um, we, we were funding it from our own pockets and the subscription money. Very often, um, by the 10th of the month, we didn't even have money for bus fare. That's how hand to mouth we used to be. Or the issue would come out, we wouldn't have money for posting it. So we saw through all that, but I at the same time saw how these women's organizations, the foreign funded ones started, obviously the scale of their operations, the comfort with which they could operate and manage the press, because then you're also given a lot of money for media management which essentially means bribing them in various ways, including taking them for conference in Goa, conference in Netherlands, which are not unfrequently. Now, once these things uh, became, they started proliferating, you see it happened on two fronts. One, feminist NGOs. Second was feminist studies, women's study centers. It started with Ford Foundation giving a large grant to the Indian Council for Social Science Research, which is HRD uh, Ministry's uh, um, funding agency for social science research in India. So it funds university centers as well as independent centers. And with this Ford Foundation money, suddenly there was a proliferation of women's studies units, women's study, women in development centers all over. And in fact, the joke in those days was if you can't get a fellowship anywhere, go apply in women's studies. Uh, because there's enough money to be. And so a lot of men also turned feminists and sent proposals and started doing. Now, it's interesting that at the same time, I think it was in 1981 or something, that Center for Women's Development Studies, which became in a way the mother, uh, uh, the, uh, 
they set up Center for Women's Development Studies in Delhi with Reena Majumdar as the first founding director. And this organization then began to um, lead the agenda of women's studies and the discourse, the formation of the discourse around women's studies. What's happening in India? Um, what do women need? Uh, what's their status currently? Reena Majumdar had also done a report to the Government of India Status of Women Committee report way back in 1975. So that entire political narrative around women's issues then came to be uh, coming from these, I mean, these uh, centers were spread all over with, with few leading ones a in uh, Delhi, CWDS, and I think another one in Mumbai, in SNDT University, these two, three major centers came up. And it's very interesting that most of those handpicked by foreign funding agencies were leftists. So CPI, CPM, Maoist, they were the preferred uh, choices for women. And for example, CWDS is literally uh, a woman's, I mean, uh, um, uh, a wing of the Communist Party of India Marxists. You can't get a faculty position even today there unless you are a CPM card holding member. So they handpicked leftist CPI, CPM, and Maoist. They, they were their preferred academics. And they brought in a very interesting collaboration between the activist feminists who were being funded through activist NGOs and the academic feminists who were in universities and special research centers. So the kind of women's studies they witnessed, and mind you, all this, I did it only this morning. I said I have to tell them something. So I scratched my head and I tried to look back and make these quick notes. And it's very interesting that all the studies that you see in the name of movements were done by these foreign funded academics, often by the same funding agency, it was also funding the activists. So that even if there was a small caucus meet, some activist group did somewhere or the other, say in Pune or in Bangalore or in um, Marathawar or whatever, those would be written up very fast and presented in larger than life image, um, you know, protest, demonstration against this, Dalit women got together, they did this, and you would think the red carpet was being rolled. And since a lot of those reports were initially coming to Manushi, since we were um, one of the very few available platforms in those days, so we did publish a good lot of them, Maoist reports, uh, CPML, Women's Front, uh, Communist Party, Women's Front, their movements, etc., and these NGOs who started getting active. So unki choti moti chutput chutput activities bhi itni badi banake to movement lagne lagta tha. And very often it would happen, you know, initially when, and, and, and there's, there's a certain style of writing that funding agencies expect of you. There are certain catchwords, there are certain catchphrases, there are certain conclusions that you must reach for it to be kosher. 
So I began to get uneasy. In the early years, I didn't know what was really happening. But all these reports started reading alike. And life is not so uniform and homogenized in India that and very often I would go travel to those areas from these from where these reports came and find that what was presented as a big movement, you know, microscopes movement to movement studies movements and it's not a coincidence that, for example, the entire narrative around the Maoist movement and giving it a very human rights uh, mask has been done by people like Nandini Sundar or Bela Bhatia, who took on professorial jobs, DC may, CSDS may, university departments may, and then they are going and doing these writings. And it's, again, not a coincidence. For example, Medha Patkar's uh, Narmada Bachao Andolan. One million articles on it. But since I was a witness to that and very closely involved with, say, the Save Ganga movement, kuch nahi milega. Kyun? Ganga, Hinduon ki, right wingers ki nadi hai. Narmada, left wingers ki hai. I, I really mean it. I mean it. That's how they justified not writing about it. Not only that, anything that happened from non-leftists had to be treated with disdain. Now, when, you, when we talk about the dharmati, and for example, one of the largest mobilizations of women, I say political mobilization of women, I don't say women's movements, happened during the emergency under the aegis of the Akali Dal. Akali Dal used to uh, offer the stiffest resistance to emergency by every day they reporting arrests. They would come out of the Golden Temple, shout slogans against the emergency, get arrested, and they led many, many large resistances. Not a mention you will find, except me documenting it and publishing it in, in an EPW article. Because Akali Dal, I mean, not leftist, so. Though, as I said, their role in offering an uh, resistance to the emergency is very, very determined and very strong. And they really played a very active role. It's not that we didn't just, not like Shine Bag, you know. Paisa se aayenge. Biryani ke liye, paanche rupya bhi mil raha They went to jail in their thousands. No mention. Even more significant, if there's any dharmic-oriented movement that addressed women's issues, I would say it was Shetkari Sangatna's uh, Women's Front that they created. And very early on, this is in Maharashtra, Sharad Joshi, who had left the UN job and came back to Maharashtra and decided to work in among the dryland farmers of Maharashtra to try and understand why are our farmers so poor? It is a mystery because they are hardworking. And so he became a farmer himself. And what he learned then, he started mobilizing the peasantry. And it was in mid-80s that he came to Manushri to say, look, women are coming to us in lakhs. But 
they're not raising their own issues. We want women, farmer women, to also raise their own issues. So why don't you come and work with Shetkari Sangatna? And I very gladly went, because this is one of the few movements which is not foreign funded, which is not um, engineered from above, and which didn't use, um, it, it was not, you know, Hawaii tope. Matlab bada bada rhetoric or reality kuch hai nahi. Lots of farmers used to come on their own steam, on their own strength, apne zameen bech ke, bivio ke, aurto ne apne gehne beche us movement ko finance karne ke liye, aur garib kisano ke ki. So I worked very closely with them for 10 years. And for example, one of the most inspiring experiences of that dharmic content in a movement was the Lakshmi Mukti program. And that Lakshmi Mukti program was in, in a way my persuasion because I had by then uh, challenged the denial of land rights to women uh, on behalf of some tribal women. The, court, uh, the Supreme Court had entertained the petition very avidly in 1981, but the case dragged on and the women on whose behalf we brought in because they were being targeted as witches, witch killings ho rehi in areas mein kyunki uh, women, single women, widowed women holding land become targets of uh, greed of their own male relatives, etc., etc. I mean, that's a long story, but to cut it short, and I'd seen how miserably the Supreme Court had failed to deliver the, any relief to those women, leave alone uh, come up with uh, a proper plan of action to strengthen women's inheritance rights. And talking of colonial phase, we know how it's during colonial phase that women, women's um, uh, economic rights became the biggest casualty, the disinheritance of women. That's another big story. So I told Sharad Joshi that your court kachari ka kuch nahi hoga, wo to chhe logon ki, do logon ki bhi protection nahi kar sakte. Wo jo aurtein aayi thi, wo to mari gayi bichari. They were murdered practically because they came to court to challenge um, their own community's oppressive practice. And I said, aise chalega bhi nahi, ki hum bahar se jayein, unka kanun badalwaein, kanun ke dande se unka un aurtoon ko hak dilwaein. To aap ki kyunki itne laakho ka kisano mein itna itna prem hai aapke prati, shraddha hai, to swetcha se, voluntary giving of land rights. That should be our campaign. And Sharad Joshi really loved the idea and he gave it this beautiful nomenclature, Lakshmi Mukti campaign. And the core message of that was, ki hum kisano ki ladai lad rahe hain ki unke economic rights, bheek na ko havik dhama che daav. We want fair price for our produce. We don't want any bheek. We don't want any subsidies. And if you want economic justice as farmers, you have to then give it to your Lakshmis. They are today dependent on you. Dure rupay ke liye tarasti hai. Kapda bhi tum la ke do tab nahi saari milti hai. Things have changed, you know, in many parts of India. Women's dependence on men because of disinheritance and the culture of disinheritance coupled with poverty have distorted male-female relations and our grist ashram in many ways. So this was voluntary. And the only attraction that was offered to these villages was any village in which 100 or more families voluntarily transfer a portion of the land to the name of their Grey Lakshmi, 
will be honored as a Lakshmi Mukti Gram, and that family would be given a Lakshmi Mukti certificate that here is a family in which the Lakshmi is smoked. She's not uh, enslaved, she's not dependent, she um, has uh, means of her own. Because here, Lakshmi being uh, dependent for every little penny on uh, her husband or other relatives, uh, it means that you've demeaned her. How can then such a family prosper? And the speech that Charajoshi used to give, truly uplifting. I've written about it. I think it's time to write a fuller book on that whole experience. And believe you me, here through the Supreme Court, we couldn't get justice for half a dozen women who became petitioners. Um, they were made more vulnerable, and the court case dragged on for decades, and by the time the judgment came, things were so messy that we didn't even have the Anyway, coming very quickly summing up this story. The point that I'm trying to make is that here was one of the few examples in post-independence India of truly dharmically driven movements, both for the farmers as well as for women. And they did many other things. I traveled with them to hundreds of villages. And villages lined up, there were hundreds more lined up. By the time we did 600, we didn't know how to go on and on because we promised them, hum aapke gaon mein aapko aake certificate denge. Wo to line mein laga ke sankhlo aage. Ab hum roz, 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 kitne gaon mein jaye, even I felt dizzy from it. And you know, that it became um, a major thing for the, and the interesting thing is that men would celebrate the occasion. Male workers of the Sangatna worked to ensure that it happened. They would receive us with drums and decorate the village as if it is a big festival. Because it appealed to the dharmic values, it, it touched the core values of our civilization. We, we like to believe that we treat women as not just Lakshmi's, but also allow them to be Durgas and Saraswati's. And since, and there were many related measures and moves that the point that I was trying to say is not a single feminist or leftist wrote about this movement with a, a degree of respect. It was one of the greatest mass mobilizations. Medha Patkar's baby, uh, I mean, is uh, a joke in comparison. At no point in time, Medha Patkar would have more than 1,500, 2,000 people. Here, lakhs would gather on their own uh, steam. Literally so poor, they were carrying cooking ka saman leke aate the jahan bhi bada sammelan hona hai 2 3 lakh ka usi ground mein cooking hoti thi itne gareeb hai ki do din khana bahar ka bhi nahi afford kar sakte aise gareeb farmers ki movement unhone bhi lakshmi mukti kar di aur bahut kuch aur bhi kiya all women panchayats um, campaigns against domestic violence but feminists only wrote disparagingly about it only and i was so attacked for they called it Kulak Farmers Ki Movement. I mean, EPW may I say, but they article mil jayenge Kulak Farmers. Why? Because they'd learned it from the Soviet Union that Kulaks, um, you know, farmers, uh, peasants are, um, uh, should be collectivized. Uh, individual ownership of land is, they don't want 
their property to be collectivized, but they want farmers' property to be collectivized. Ownership of land is very retrogressive. So all this movement stuff, if you notice, is actually this jugalbandi between feminist academics and feminist NGOs, both foreign funded. You can see the connections very easily. And they paid no attention to anybody else doing anything else. In fact, there is systematic attempt to make sure that you erase from public memory, you also, because they control the media, so inko cheek bhi lagti hai, to badi movement shuru ho jati hai usse. And uh, uh, whereas if others are uh, doing big stuff, like as I gave you the example of Shetkari Sangatha, I could give you some others as well. Uh, if you're not foreign funded, you're not covered. There's not a single major uh, award given for either activism or journalism if you're not part of that network. And that's how they dominated and controlled the network. Now this entire lot, apart from giving us a certain um, manipulated, engineered view of what movements look like, is not a core utharan deti. Jab communist party, Maoist, jo farmers movement hoti hai inki, Andhra mein jaise, jab inhone liquor movements, anti-liquor movements ki, and they broke liquor shops, and you know, women led these small jathas, beat up drunkards, that's written very gloriously. But if, for example, in Gurgaon, people say, we don't want a pub, we don't want pub culture, then it's moral pollution. Then they treat, treat you, the very same people who will romanticize anti-liquor movements by Maoists uh, will treat uh, anti-pub movement in any, any city or uh, in a small town as a menace and you know, it challenges their freedom of uh, consumption or freedom of lifestyle. The point that I'm trying to emphasize is that movements, dharmic, to chodo, movement bhi nahi thi koi. Ye bilkul hothouse growth tha. These NGOs and their accounts are really describing hothouse growth. They had no roots in reality, no um, uh, cultural moorings in the society out of which they come. And that's another reason why feminist activism, both academic and NGO activist uh, type and legal activism, moved in the direction of changing laws. So from the very start, uh, they would pick up any instance. For example, like Nirbhya case became um, the occasion to create a massive national hysteria around the issue of rape. Um, make the law more stringent, uh, make it more draconian, make it more fierce. Now, if you went and asked at those, uh, you know, at India Gate, where they were doing all the breast beating with 24-7 TV coverage, okay, you want the law to be made uh, stronger, but what is the existing rape law like? Nobody had read it. They don't read the existing law. Just as they got a hideously draconian rape law passed using Nirbhaya's rape and murder case and a law that is causing utter havoc because it's draconian in many ways. Number one, 
the definition of rape is outrageously overweening. Um, earlier, you needed, for example, some medical evidence of bodily harm, including penetration, and whatever, if you, know, you, you were a victim of sexual violence or rape, there were certain protocols that had to be. The fact that the police didn't do these investigations honestly is not case enough to say, have a rape, anti-rape law, which says if the woman says, I've been raped, well, she's been raped. No need for medical corroboration. No need to even prove that there was any penetration. So that even um, charge of fondling, um, he put his finger uh, up my vagina, I mean, something that can't be medically co co corroborated. Or, uh, you know, penetrated, even a forced kiss can be, by the definition of rape that they have uh, instituted, it can be called rape. Secondly, if she's saying she's raped, then she's raped. Even if she goes to the thana and says, it, we were living together, he was raping me for three years, all because he refused to marry. He promised me marriage, then we lived for three years together, and now the relationship is broken, so this means he was raping me for three years. So many people have gone to jail for, for those kind of absurd charges because she's saying he raped, he raped. You, didn't, you don't need any further proof. You, the woman doesn't have to prove it. The man has to prove that he doesn't. Now, how does he do it? It's virtually impossible to do so. It, I mean, I've written extensively on these subjects. If you do a Google search, there's a large cover story article on the absurdity of the rape law and the gross misuse that we are witnessing. But it all started, for example, with the anti-dowry law and the anti-domestic violence act. Now, if I show you, see, even when the British, you know, you talk about colonial rulers and their laws and how they messed up our social structure and fabric. But to be fair to them, when they wanted to enforce a law, good or bad, mostly bad, uh, they made a pretense of consulting with the communities concerned. They would have extensive discussions and dialogues. It's just that they were viewing everything from a colonial mindset. And so they manipulated those dialogues, but there were extensive discussions. And officers uh, of those days actually worked hard to understand what was happening, what, was, uh, what were the dynamics behind it, including the law against female infanticide. Here today, in post-independence India, especially after the coming of foreign-funded activists and uh, academics, there's not even a pretense of discussing with society at large or the communities, the concerned communities, what kind of laws we should pass, what the problem is, how do you diagnose it, and why, uh, you know, wh wh what needs to be the role of legislation. And if I give you a couple of examples, starting with one of the earliest laws, banning dowry. Um, initially, um, you know, a lot of dowry murders, okay, footnote, five minutes, okay. I'll just give you a definition of dowry. Since I've written very extensively, you can Google search my article, and hopefully I'll bring revised editions of these books very soon. Just see how badly crafted these laws are. Definition of dowry. Read, um, follow me carefully. 
and your head will go dizzy. Any property or valuable security given or agreed to be given either directly or indirectly by one party to a marriage to the other party to the marriage or by the parents of either party to a marriage or by any other person to either party to the marriage at or before or any other time after the marriage in connection with the marriage of the sub said party. I summons. I summons. I mean, all the... For any law to be effective, the least you expect is that the so-called crime is precisely defined. If a law does not distinguish between death by suicide, death by murder, death by road accident, you say it's a mad law. But our anti-sati act does exactly that. I don't have time to talk about it, but it's equally absurd. Now, this kind of definition of dowry, which means if I give even two bangles to my sister on her marriage, I should be behind bars. Because iski saza punishment to jailer. Or if a mother-in-law gifts 20 tolas of stone, uh, gold to her daughter-in-law as she enters the Greb Pravesh, then she should be behind bars. Because anything given to either one. I mean, really, it, it's as absurd as that. Now, at the same time, Dowry is forbidden, but gifts are allowed. Now, how does that work? Uh, do you, have you ever seen any giving where on the refrigerator they will say, dowry item, sofa is gift? How do you even distinguish it? I mean, I can tell you the absurdities are manifold. And I could have given you a one-hour uh, presentation on just the absurdities of the anti-dowry law. And yet... Our anti-dowry law, combined with 498A, which is supposedly a law to combat domestic violence, with the definition of domestic violence being as gross and stupid, where uh, taunts are at par with breaking a woman's bones. I mean, no law where you say verbal abuse ha can be ever put at par with abuse that involves uh, breaking a woman's bones or burning a body with cigarette stubs or etc etc but that's how absurd the uh, domestic violence law is and as a result countless families because again you just had to go to the police station and say these 16 people were involved in uh, domestic violence in harassing me in, in um, taunting me in abusing me even if it's a sister-in-law living in california or in madurai and she would have a case against her and you go to jail and in all these cases, the due process is given a go-by. And you first go to jail, then you work hard to get bail. They're not bailable offenses. You don't get bail easily. And then you prove that the burden of proof is on the accused. In case of murder, the burden of uh, uh, proof is not on the accused. In many other, most other crimes, the burden of proof is in the person who's making a charge. But in all feminist legislation, the burden of proof is on the man that, or his mother, that he's not committed the crime, that he did not abuse the daughter-in-law or did not commit domestic violence. So as a result of which, countless, I, I could, if I had my presentation, I would have shown you the data how absurd it is, what percentage of all these cases. Now, I believe and I'm very convinced that all this, because it is 
A, done through the agency of foreign funded NGOs and academics. It is meant, and most of these foreign funded institutions, funding institutions, are also Christian church-based institutions. A large part of the funding, so women's organizations, human rights organizations, have been used as, um, as front organizations of these evangelical groups because they wanted to open up Indian society for conversions. And therefore, the agenda to break up, tear asunder the social fabric, for it, one of the first requirements is to tear asunder family as an institution. Today, getting married is like high-risk venture. And a lot of old parents are telling their kids, please go out before. Don't even spend your honeymoon night in our house because we don't know when we'll be uh, sent to jail or accused of 498A. It's happening on a large scale. And which is not to say domestic violence doesn't take place. It's a still a very gross reality. A lot of women are abused. And we can't shut our eyes to it. And the point that I'd like to make is this. The leftists, the foreign-funded feminists, now joined by Islamists, don't touch Muslim personal law, but keep messing and raping everything to do with Hindu community. They all are together in it. But the saddest part in it all is twofold. One, in all of this, mine has been the lone voice. As each one of these laws was being proposed or enacted, I kept pleading with them, please notice this is the way it's going to be abused. These are the clauses that lend themselves to easy blackmail, extortion, abuse. Nobody paid heed. And certainly not the BJP or the RSS. I had to go and plead with them uh, repeatedly. In each case, you can see the voting pattern in Parliament. Sushma Swarajji or Smriti Rani or whoever represents BJP, each one of them dutifully followed whatever Brinda Karat had to say in, in, in Parliament, or Indira Jaising had to say, and the judges too um, are really petrified of going against them. I've been to law commission chairman to say, please review these laws, at least appoint a task force to do so. And the law commission chairman literally asks me, what does Indira Jaising and Brinda Grover think about it? I said, they obviously, Love it because they are the ones who, with all this ferocious money they got, they wanted these laws. Oh, in that case, Madhuji, uh, we respect you a lot, but you know, we can't commit political harakari. I go to law ministers to say that, whether it's Congress law minister or a BJP law minister, they all say the same thing. Aye, feminist behne aapki humko kacha kha jayengi. So Madhuji, ye aapi ladai lado, aur ecosystem tiyar karo, phir jab sudarna hoga. Nobody has the guts. But most importantly, what about our society? We haven't bothered. We have handed over the job of legislation to foreign-funded NGOs and those that are hostile to India. Now we talk about it only when there's an agitation of the Shaheen Bakayin or when they turn to terrorist politics. But actually, the manner in which they have um, declared war on our society, on our social institutions, and on our social fabric, including, for example, last, carpenters. Nobody dared come in their defense when they used cases of stray owner killings to say, 
Ben Carpenter. The entire media went hysterical, exactly as it did over Nirbhaya. And for three years in the Supreme Court, uh, the case was heard, and Shakti Vaini, the organization that filed this petition, um, making a case that Carpentites are very anti-democratic, anti-human, anti-this, anti-everything, all bad things, is actually funded by evangelical groups whose stated agenda is planting churches. I got that funding, published it, took it to the law minister, but the Supreme Court heard that petition for three years without involving cops. What do you have to say about it? Till I stepped in, I did the study, I looked at the data they were presenting, it turned out only 3% of honor killings in India are related to the Gotra issue, which is what connects cops. In not a single case is any panchayat or cop involved in ordering the killings, families do, just as they do when there's an interreligious marriage. We know how uh, Manish Saxena, Saxena was slaughtered by uh, the family of the girl who he married, a Muslim girl he married. Now, nobody would say ban the mosques, ban the Muslim organization simply because there have been honor killings of Hindu men when uh, they marry Muslim women. But in the case of Kapanchais, the law commission also had crafted and drafted a full law saying they need to be banned. Not only cops need to be uh, outlawed, but even gatherings of the family in case of uh, an elopement uh, of a Sagotra couple, um, even gatherings are, are to be declared illegal. They can't do it. And they can be preemptive arrest and they can be locked up. I, when I decided to represent Kap Panchayat, because nobody was willing to argue for them, I couldn't get even a BJP lawyer to appear on their behalf. So I appeared in person, brought in six, seven Kap Panchayats. We were able to at least stall the law, that you will not pass a law banning them. But the entire defamation campaign has lasted so now, whenever people want to refer to something horrible, they say, kangaroo courts. Actually, cops do far better work than our courts. I would any day prefer to go to a cop panchayat to resolve my case than to go to any of our circuit court or high court or supreme court, where there's very little justice, but there's a lot of harassment of innocence and um, injustice being done. They're there to protect mainly criminals. So the point that I'd like to make is we have surrendered the most intimate aspects of our life, our dress keys, to these hostile forces that have actually been at war against our society, civilization, culture, through legislation. Now, any society which does that so basically what I I urge you all, please pay attention to each law as it's being enacted. And it's not just uh, AK-47s and Shaheen Bagh type of 
disruptive activities that are there to break up India. The break up India movement actually has first and foremost tried to tear asunder our social fabric and destroyed the possibility of healthy, balanced family life because the laws are so biased and so partisan that now ashram chalane wali wo jo abhi aap bata rahe the na mantra bolne wali aisi mahila milengi bhi nahi wo seedhe thane pahunchne wali hai jhoothe case lagane wali we are mass producing that kind of woman because that's the kind of woman that the mass media the tv channels even our films are lionizing thank you very much Thank you so much, Madhuji. She talked about a uh, lot of laws and a lot of definitions, which you know makes us go into a tizzy. So if you just Google uh, the readability index, you know the definition of terms like dowry and all they go into the minus side. I mean the definition of dowry comes at minus 35 actually in the readability index. And similarly, there are several laws of th that kind. So I mean today, I mean there is a lot to be learned from the kind of work she has done. I mean she mentioned a lot of areas where the government didn't listen, but there is one area definitely where some progress did happen because of 20 years of sustained work. That is the Street Vendors Act today. I mean, if you see the street vendors and uh, you know, uh, they are protected, they are, I mean, uh, saved from some kind of harassment is because of the law, which Manushi campaigned for 20 years and a lot happened, uh, you know, during that journey. And that's another whole area. Cycle rickshaw pullers again, Delhi. pedestrian-friendly zones, that's an outcome of our PIL to protect non-motorized vehicles, demand separate dedicated tracks for them, and save pedestrian crossings. So the all kuch hua nahi, Chandni Chok to bana. Several areas, ma'am. Car-free zones ban Nehru, please, before you go, ma'am, uh, can I request Dr. Anuradha to please felicitate her? And also, uh, one thing I also want to remind is that the one of the early uh, wonderful uh, lesbian feminists, um, uh, Ruth Vanita, uh, who is in U.S. now, one of the greatest scholar uh, yeah. on lesbian, uh, uh, you know, human rights. They both started Banushi. Yes. <laughs> they both were part of all these things, and which is very very important. Whatever you read about same sex. Uh, you know, um, uh, history in India. Piece best piece of writing from comes from Ruth, Dr. Ruth Vanita. So, uh, <laughs> Dr. Anurita. 